Welcome to the Career Pod, brought to you by Transition Solutions. Our host for today's episode is our founder and CEO, Mr. Fred Studley. In this episode, Fred talks with Mr. Jeff Newton. Trained as a geologist, he assumed he'd build a career in academia, teaching at a major American university. However, he soon found himself working in a large multinational petroleum resources company, doing exploratory and developmental geological work. He was responsible for traveling the globe, going to locations where it was thought there may be petrochemical resources, and using his geological skills and emerging technologies to assess the potential of these petroleum fields. He talks about the nature of travel to remote countries, dealing with cultures, political infrastructures, social norms, and economic realities very different from the U.S. He talks about the growth of specific technologies and the degree to which they were able to fine-tune analyses and decisions to guide major petrochemical companies in multi-billion dollar, multi-year investments. It's an amazing conversation and a rare insight into part of the petrochemical world that rarely gets any visibility. We hope you enjoy this episode. Well, uh, welcome, uh, Jeff Newton. We're very glad to have you with us, and welcome to CareerPod. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity to participate. All right. Well, first of all, uh, Jeff, I, one of my favorite uh, movies is Shawshank Redemption. And do you think Andy really could have gone through that wall and cut a hole? What do you think? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. That, that little hammer is so uh, impressively small. It's, it's, I have no idea what, like a watch fob or something. No, that was not going to work. Not going to work. So next time I'm imprisoned, I, I won't ask for a, a small rock hammer. Well, when you ask for a rock hammer, you need to be more specific. I think. All right. Now, you have rock hammers, I suspect? Uh, I do. I have uh, four, and it um, depends upon their function, but... One's pretty old and leather-wrapped handle, and one's pretty new, and those are your standard jobs with a, a pokey end and a flat end, and I also carry two uh, sledgehammers for the heavy lifting right. part. So. Now, now, you have these yeah. in your car at all times, right? In, my, in, the, in the trunk. They're right. in there now, in case I run across a rock. You know, you know you've got a, I know we're deviating here, but tell me the last time you took it out of the trunk and walked over just before you went into the restaurant when you saw this great-looking rock, or you have to be out in the desert to do this? No, it was actually, the last time I did that, I was down doing a bird population survey in Galveston Island. Okay. And, um, which I do with the Audubon Society, and um, there was, the, I was teaching a course that was for students and stuff, and I needed a piece of granite, and they had huge boulders of granite they were using, to you know, protect against the, the action of the sea. Right. I just went in my trunk, got my hammer out, and smacked a piece off. God, I just actually several pieces. Very impressive, I'm sure everybody was saying. Uh, how about early on in your career, Jeff? Uh, you know, your education, your your life choices early on. Uh, what really was most impactful, uh, and maybe where you're from originally? Uh, well, I'm originally from uh, Detroit, Michigan. Actually, born in Detroit in 1939, and um, the, the, my, my dad, although he was a mechanical and chemical and metallurgical engineer, was a bit of a naturalist. So hanging out with my dad was really cool. Oh, and there were, there were rocks lying around, and a lot of those rocks had fossils in them. I was just, just, I was fascinated with that. So I had a 
general interested in biology and botany and that sort of stuff, and you know, throw in rocks, I thought, gee, it's cool. Okay. Uh, yeah, early, well, early for me. Yeah, we find, and it, it shouldn't surprise us, but in many of our interviews, uh, the, the impact of uh, parents, uh, yeah. and, and in quite a few cases, it isn't the, the alpha male, uh, it's the, the mother, too. But this is good that you had that influence early yeah. on. How about your yeah. uh, choice of schools? Where did you go to school? Well, I started college at the uh, Michigan College of Mines up in uh, Houghton, Michigan, which is struck up in the middle of Lake Superior, um, uh, which at that time was like the, the preeminent uh, mining school in the Midwest. Okay. And uh, you need, I t- yeah, found out I wasn't an engineer. Work. Okay, I'm sorry. We were talking <laughs> yes, over each I other. found out I wasn't an engineer. I was a geologist. Engineers, they like a whole lot of other things like mechanics and math and that sort of stuff, which... It never enthralled me. Okay. And so yes, then I had my sabbatical, as you mentioned, which I dropped out of college and joined the uh, joined the army, and spent three years doing that. Okay. And then you uh, just fast forwarding, you went to Penn State, and uh, you got your PhD, I guess there. Yep, PhD at Penn State. That's right. Okay. Uh, Nineteen seventy. Okay. And and how about uh, where'd you go after your PhD? Where'd you have your first job? Um, I was recruited by and went to work for Texaco in Houston, okay. actually in their research lab. And, and were you stuck in an office or were you out in the field for much of your work? Well, I was stuck in the office briefly and they said, would you like to go down to Ecuador? We're drilling some wells down there. And I said, sure. So I went down there and looked at some, what, what the rocks were coming out of the hole we were drilling and what the rocks were there in the front of the Andes a few miles away and did that. And then I got a job working for the Los Angeles division out of Houston on the North Slope. So I got around pretty much in the first year. I did quite a bit. And then Trinidad. I went to Trinidad and Tobago. Hmm. Yeah. So that was a got out. Yeah. ideal first job. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, it really was. Good. So, Jeff, uh, a question about the type of people in uh, their backgrounds and their utilization. Uh, you, you may have been either as a supervisor or as a uh, part of a recruiting team, you may have interviewed people. And what kind of people did you look for uh, to join Texaco? Yeah, I was a recruiter for Texaco. And what I was looking for, the kinds of people that I wanted, I thought would be successful, were not necessarily um, just glow-in-the-dark grades. What I was looking for were people who, uh, if, they, if their grades weren't great, if what, what they had to do to get through school, had they had uh, the problem of uh, lack of uh, sufficient income, so they had to work and take a job, so they're going to college and uh, have a job to support, and they're trying to scratch their way through. So I like the fact that these people were so motivated to get this degree that they were actually spending so much time trying to earn money to get that degree that their grades would suffer a little bit. So I found that useful. And I would also always, when I had sort of looked at a couple of them, I would talk to the department chairman and um, about, my, about my selection process and uh, the kinds of students that I had talked to and what their view was of them as well. So basically I, I had a filter in my mind and at the end, um, I had somebody at, on the campus cross-check that filter. And the, the process was always the same. Uh, was 
if I like them, I would invite them to come down to Houston to uh, to interview further. So it wouldn't just be my uh, my choice. So they would talk to four or five people in the department. We take them out, buy them lunch, and send them back to school. And from that population of people, from my recruiting and other recruiters, we would bring four or five of them in uh, for a summer as interns. And the intern process uh, was: Do we like them? Do they like us? Do we see the potential in them that we thought we saw? And then they would go back to campus, and we'd make a job offer to uh, a few okay. in the fall. In what so what that. in in part of the the pre work for this interview. Uh, you, you made a, a point about uh, when you look at a resume, it will often say, you know, we did this or the project was successful or, or whatever. If they had related, uh, uh, you know, uh, work, summer work or whatever, internships. Yeah, that was part of the, one of the questions we ha I had was that, tell me about something that you did that you were very proud of, some, something that you led to a recommendation or something. And they would all, almost always a student will tell you that I was part of a team that did something. Right. And I would say, no, I, I really don't want to hear about your team. I want to hear about something. You, I don't care how trivial it is, but something that you did that you thought of and you recommended. And they would tell me something. Yeah. And But I would like to have them follow through. And I said, did you make a recommendation to pursue that? And I don't care if it was successful or turned right. down or not. It was just that you carried, you started something, carried it through. And made a recommendation. Yeah. I always thought that was a, a good measure. Yeah, and I think that's a good takeaway for anybody listening to this podcast because is a new hire, a college grad, or even mid-careerist, or even later. And yeah. I think it's yeah. probably important to mention team-oriented activities, but also uh, don't be bashful about bragging about things that you did uh, in the, right. the show exactly. initiative, and, and it makes a difference. It it full maturity or mid-careers geologist, what is your focus? Are you focusing on large projects or are there smaller uh, individual activities you're involved in? Oh, uh, in, in, in my case, it was uh, regional. Uh, to, to take on a very large geologic province that may have just become available for exploration, let's take, let's say, uh, Uzbekistan at uh, the whole country. So we would look at the whole country and its potential and kind of narrow it down to the two or three places that we think we have the greatest potential and then go after it. We can go meet with the government, the Ministry of Geology, and all that sort of stuff. But always was the large scale. As a manager of New Ventures for Texaco, it had to be just on the edges of what we were doing, yeah. something we were not doing a new province, a new area. So for me, it was always big picture. Okay. And and when did you exit? Uh, did you stay there until there was oil flying out of a, a, a rig, or were you on to the next project fairly quickly? No, I went home. Oh. Um, I might stay as long as the beginning of the negotiations, since I was a face that the government knew, but the negotiations were carried out by our lawyers and negotiators and people that, that had those kinds of competencies and things. Because after all, you had to run a set of economics on it, all depending upon what the government taxes and royalty were and okay. what your cost might be and the profitability of a venture. So we were the pie in the sky guys and say, yeah, it has a lot of potential. 
then the contract had to be something that would reward you if you found something. Okay. So I, I was long gone by then. You, you mentioned you were happy to move on at that point, typically in a process. If you focus on the first decade of your career, what tended to be the most challenging and rewarding parts of your role? Uh, actually, the most challenging aspects of my role was I got transferred to uh, New Orleans in a management role. And all of a sudden, I had a account for uh, about a dozen people who reported to me and had varying responsibilities. And I found myself um, managing their time more than my own time. And so as a consequence of that, I, I really didn't have a project anymore. They were my project. Right. So um, that was quite challenging for me uh, and sought an opportunity to... Um, get rid of that challenge by accepting an offer from Texaco and Coral Gables, Florida from the Latin America division, okay. which was pure exploration. All right. And, and in those situations, uh, you acquire knowledge. You, you, how did you get uh, your reputation and the ability to do this uh, kind of Lone Ranger work? Uh, did you have a good hit rate? Did they have a high confidence that you picked a lot more winners and losers? And, how did you earn that autonomy that you enjoyed? Uh, well, essentially, I and, the, and the, the people like me and other companies, that what we do is we provide work for a lot of people. Um, if, let's say, we went into, uh, let's say, I don't know, let's say Norway or something, if we did sign that contract, all of a sudden there's petroleum engineers, there's geologists, there's geophysicists, there's office managers, a whole bunch of people who now have the job of, following through on all of that so yeah that's in those terms it's um highly productive uh, you know those people uh, were looking for someone to point them in a direction okay. and extremely competent to follow that direction and, so, yeah and again after your first decade or so uh or maybe you, you captured some of these uh in in earlier but how about the subject of mentors uh you know, did you have a mentor, and, and how did that evolve? Well, early on, I had a, a, a mentor, um, and then the first year or so at Texaco, a really, really um, bright, able guy, uh, also a PhD, University of Illinois, and he he gave me kind of the tools to do things. And um, I remember after I'd been there a couple of days, you know, I found out where my office was and how the keys worked in the doors. And I walked in, I said, um, uh, okay, I'm ready. What do you want me to do? And he said, I didn't hire you to tell you what to do. <laughs> okay. So, um, uh, and he didn't mean it in a brusque and nasty way. He meant it in, in, in a yeah. factual way. Right. Uh, but that's why I was there, not to, for me to tell him. That's, that's a good take. So I did. Yep. I invented my, invented myself. I guess. Good. good. And then uh, now uh, you had multiple in, uh, mentors or? We, he was the uh, sole person, principally. He was the. I hap, I happened to. Um, he at when I went to New Orleans, I had a really good. I made a really good contact there with a guy who was actually the chief geologist for Texaco, and he was the one that, that we would sit around and chat and talk about rocks and stuff. And and uh, he said, "Where where do you see yourself going?" I said, "I'd like to be involved with Latin America." And about six months later, he calls up and says. You're being transferred. Well, that's great. To Latin America. So, good. yeah, really good guy. Good. Well, it's good to have multiple mentors, I believe, you know. 
You never know what's yeah, going to happen. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. People can call, you know, yeah. say, hey, you know, what's up? Now, you decided to leave Texaco. What what was the catalyst in that regard? Texaco's management had become... I wasn't happy with them, and they weren't happy with me, and it seemed like a good choice. So I hired a recruiter, and uh, she, actually my recruiter, uh, found me a really nice job in Houston. So I quit Texaco and Coral Gables and moved back to Houston. Now, part of the reason we have these discussions is really to go into what's a typical life, day in the life, if you will, uh, in your job in terms of responsibilities, types of activities. Could you take us through, uh, and it may well be that it, it changed over your years, but uh, give me the fundamental day in the life, if you would. Uh, well, let's see. Uh, when I was, let's say, manager of uh, Worldwide New Ventures for Texaco, which would be the last phase of my life there, um, I would get to the office at uh, 5.30 in the morning, and it wouldn't make any difference because uh, with a worldwide operation, in Texaco, like a lot of these companies have worldwide operations, there was always somebody I could talk to, Indonesia or London or someplace, and just to find out what um, what was happening and the energy to drive various projects and what the ear to the ground was. And then um, by the time I had kind of finished that circuit, then the guys would be coming in. I had a small team of about 10. And then I would make sure everybody was launched and happy over coffee, and then I'd get to work on my own projects, and they'd go work on theirs. Uh, I made it a rule that uh, there was a 100% chance if you worked for me, I would be spending time with you today, hmm. every day. That's good. And they, was that needed, or was it more supportive in nature? Did they have critical questions they needed answered, or they needed typically, confidence building? Typically, it was more, more supportive, yeah. typically, and sometimes it would be some questions answered and some problems solved, but typically it was just wondering what they're doing, supporting them and what they were doing, or maybe changing a little direction here and there. But basically, I would say 80% just support. Okay. And how about when you're in the field as an individual contributor? Uh, what what did you do on a typical day? And it may, again, have changed over the years. It did. It changed a lot. Um, early on, of course, you were you know, out there with a a small group and, um, you know, some guys maybe chopping down the brush in front of you or something, but, um, that, but in the later years, you tended to, you know, get a first class class plane ticket and fly to London and talk to the London office for a while and fly to someplace else, you know, Uzbekistan or Kazakhstan or whatever, the Sudan or something and um, stay in the five-tower uh, accommodations. Yeah. Then go out in the jungle and get dirty. Okay. And, so. and the tools you use change, too. Uh, you know, it, 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 the kind of act of, you know, you're in a data-driven environment. How did you get data, and how did that change over the years? Um, what developed over the years was uh, scouting services and uh, databases that were created and they were accessible. Uh, one of the big breakthroughs for us were the, the satellites. When the satellite images were became available from the Earth Reconnaissance satellites, uh, they were very, very helpful. We can see an awful lot from space that we would trudge around on the ground to see. So they were, they were a huge weapon for us. And then um, ultimately, 
um, better search engines. As more and more places would digitize uh, file information that you previously had to dig out, you could go to a place like, I don't know, Bogota, and you could search uh, a pretty good database yeah. and get realistic information. So that, the, the satellites plus the electronic databases were a big help to us. And that's as contrasted to your earlier days where uh, you, you had none of those tools. What did you have to rely on then? Um, yourself. Okay. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. That. Yeah, I mean, you had, you know, there were always people around. People knew where you were and what you were doing. And I mean, you were in, nobody's ever alone in, the, in that business. You can't let people wander around out there alone. Right. So, you, what do you that, in the older days, or even uh, as you do some work now? I know you've got an actor at time. What I, I is it rock formations or where a riverbed flows? Or I, I'm above. You know, this is above my pay grade. Well, I tell you, if you'll ever, let's say, go to the American West, and there's rocks all over the place. I mean, there are vast thicknesses of them exposed, right. and the Grand Canyon has a mile of them. But there are really some various components that we talk about as being the petroleum system. You have to have a source rock, a rock that under the right temperature and pressure will expel oil. Yeah. And then you have a place for it to migrate to, like I only call them a reservoir, with porosity in it so the oil can stay there. And you need a seal over the top of that. And then you need a structure that can contain it. So all of those components have to go into your okay. into your model. And you collect and look at rocks to determine if you have that sequence of things. Yeah. So that is a model that you have in your mind and that you're going after the sample. Okay. Uh, shale is a big thing now. Obviously, it's been Shale's a big. big, great thing. And uh, take me through a little bit about shale and and what it's done for the industry. Shale, the um, these rich organic shales. There were what we would used to call the epiric seas. At, at a long time ago in the Devonian Mississippi, and there were these large inland seas. And because they're inland, they had a little turnover. So the bottoms of those seas were anoxic. There was no oxygen down there. So any organic material that would fall into those things was preserved. Hmm. So we had known those were there for a long time, like the Bakken and, and, and names you, you may know. But we knew they were there, and we knew they were rich in these organic molecules, and we knew that there was a certain amount of liquid oil and, and gaseous molecules in them, except you couldn't afford to do it. So when oil hit 100 bucks, all of a sudden it became reachable. So they began to drill the wells into that. And what happened was, over time, efficiencies moved in, so the originally very expensive wells became less expensive wells, mm -hmm. So as the price of oil fell to 50 bucks, they were still profitable in, in uh, many cases. So that, and um, the, for a lot of people who are concerned about fracking, which is kind of a sidebar, right. uh, you, right. have to, you have to make it into uh, two elements. First of all, the fracking process is you drill down until you intersect these beds, and then you drill horizontally through them so you expose a lot of surface. And then you take these very, very nasty, deadly, poisonous chemicals along with some sand grains and you inject it at very, very high pressure and temperature into those horizontal wells to crack open the rocks and leave the sand grains behind so they don't close. 
Then you extract all of that stuff that you threw in it as really nasty, nasty stuff, and you bring that up to the surface and dispose of it. So it's the fracking process itself is going on a mile to two miles below your feet. So nothing's going to leap up from that. It's not going to leak to the surface from that. It's the disposal of those nasty fluids at the surface that is the problem. And all those earthquakes in Oklahoma are caused by the injection of these nasty things down deep into three wells that that lubricate the fault systems. So that's causing those earthquakes. The other thing is sloppy handling of those fluids at the surface can very clearly contaminate groundwater okay. and well water, the things you get out of your you know farm wells and that kind of stuff. So if you're not a very good operator and leak that stuff, yeah, they're, those are very deadly chemicals. Okay. So fracking itself is a let's say a relatively benign process, but it's the disposal of the weapon of the uh, the water and fluids you send down there. That's the problem. Well, well, maybe fusion power is in our future. Let's uh, we'll see about that. Yeah, there's there's uh, not much development. Well, there's several attempts to get fusion power going, but yeah, uh, it's a ways off. The sun does it every day, by the way. Yes, Jeep. yes, yeah, that's cheap too. Handy. Hey, you don't have to go very far to find it either, do you? Uh, no, yes. Okay. Well, and, yeah. All right. Well, how about uh, just, and we touched upon this earlier, about the trade-off of being a manager uh, who may be having more advancement options and, or right. being an individual contributor and out in the field. How about the, what would you say about your own experience and the satisfiers that would fall to to either one of those types of jobs. But management jobs are, have all of their challenges. I mean, they're uh, a wholly different set of challenges. And to do it right, you really have to work at it and, and um, be effective. To, you, you, you are the ones who are controlling basically the profitability stream of a company. Whereas on the other end, where, where I like to reside, you're accountable for facts. You have to assemble and digest and manipulate all of the facts you can possibly bring to bear. And if they're negative facts, they have to be included. You just have to include everything that you have to do. So your accountabilities are technical, uh, but they have a big economic impact if you um, get them wrong or interpret them incorrectly. So different kinds of responsibilities. Right. Yeah. And uh, let's see, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, luck for a minute. And uh, we'll talk about the best and worst move uh, from a career standpoint. Uh, let, let's start about uh, the best move and maybe the worst move. What would you uh, think your best move might have been from a career standpoint? Uh, I think the best move from a, from a lifestyle and from a career standpoint was um, going to Coral Gables and, uh, and becoming involved with... Uh, the Latin American division and pure exploration. That that to me exposed me to a whole lot, to a whole lot of professionals. Uh, Texaco had large offices in places like Colombia and Ecuador and elsewhere, and so uh, they were very talented people, um, Colombians, Ecuadorians, people like that that you could work with and drain knowledge from. There, that was always that to me was a a real, real big boost to me because uh, all of a sudden I was faced with the ability to just go out and dig up all my own stuff with some help. Okay. So that was, that was good. No. And the worst move I made was 
um, after I left Texaco and I uh, was living the and the next company that I worked for and they were sold and selling themselves out. I went for a small company who offered me stock options, and of course that's predicated upon the value and the performance of the stock. And what the guy says, I can't tell you, but we're growing this well right now in Wyoming, and it's going to like triple the size of our company. And I said, groovy. <laughs> well, when I got on board, and I, as chief geologist, I, t- I went up to Denver, who was drilling the well, and I took a look at. Um, I said, this is has no hope. This is not going to find anything. And subsequently, it didn't find anything, and the stock value fell to like almost nothing, which means the value of my uh, stock options was uh, zero. So uh, I, I guess I got flim flammed a little bit on that. But yeah, uh, you know. that that can be uh, a somewhat related subject. Has to do with good luck and bad luck. Uh, good luck sometimes uh, gets dismissed. And you kind of have to be in the right place to have good luck happen. And yep. uh, we talk about yeah. Bill Gates and Warren Buffett when they met for the first time. They just happened to be walking across a quadrangle in a, uh, at a college where they were attending a conference. They bumped into each other and they stopped and sat down and talked. And that became a beginning of a relationship now. It's famous collaboration and for gift giving and so forth. Yeah. So what would sure. you say uh, would be... Maybe some of your good luck. Well, they, um, uh, my favorite piece of good luck is I was flying, uh, living in Houston, flying back from South America. I think it was Argentina. So I'm at the airport in Miami, and I'm walking toward my plane, and there's a, one of these little small bars sitting there, and there's a guy I used to work for, with, actually my old bridge partner, at Texaco, and he's now a VP of Texaco. And he says... Uh, what are you doing? Have a drink? I said, sure, have a drink. He says, uh, give me 50 bucks. I'm going to Vegas. I'll let you know how you do. I said, great. He said, by the way, you want to come back to work for Texaco? I said, yeah. So anyway, <laughs> off he goes. He loses my 50 bucks and calls me up and says, uh, come on back. No, that's good. So, so yeah, that worked out well. So that's, that is the example of just pure luck. Jeff, uh question comes up. Uh, if you, you know, didn't have the career you had, what what other option might you have taken, and, and how do you feel about that? Well, actually, that's a, a good question. My entire purpose in getting a, a Ph.D. was to be a professor. I, I wanted to be a professor of geology in American University. And when I graduated from, uh, I was graduating from Penn State with my Ph.D., I was offered several teaching jobs. Um, and the one I was most attracted to was the University of Michigan, and I'm virtually the only person in my family not to have graduated from the University of Michigan. <laughs> and uh, they offered me $6,500 a year to start. Yeah. And the uh, same day they, that offer arrived, I got my offer from Texaco at 16500 Okay. So I took the deal. Yeah. And I was saying to myself, oh, a little industry experience would be great. Right. And you can always go back to teaching. Yeah. Yeah, well, a long time later, yeah. it never happened. Did you, did you ever? <laughs> no. Did you no, ever? But I teach a lot now. Yeah. I actually uh, used to teach a, uh, once a year a, torch, a little course at Harvard, Good. and I teach in the state master master naturalist program here, and I teach in the public schools, and I and I'm a uh, what a science fair judge in the school systems and stuff. So yeah, I'm out there. So you've got an active retirement going now, which is uh, very important. Yeah. Uh, 
And you, yeah. do you do any consulting too still? I'm still consulting. Um, uh, we have a project going in Oklahoma right now, but um, after I retired, my ex-old consulting partner called up and said, um, you bored yet? I said, yeah. So we did a project <laughs> in Brunei. Okay. Uh, we did a couple in the States. We did one in Chile. We did one in Colombia. We did one in Panama. We did one in Guatemala. We did one in Argentina. So, That's good. And now we got one in Oklahoma. So. And, and I'm forced to ask this question because uh, it's right in front of me. Uh, on a 10-point scale, 10 being high, how would you evaluate your overall career? 10. Okay. 10. Uh, they were paying me to do something I might have done for nothing. Yeah. Got to, uh, that's a tip for others that are listening. Don't tell them you'd work for nothing. It's not a good, not <laughs> yeah, a good move. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah. And yeah. You, you've loved what you've done. It, it, it's, it comes right through. How about general uh, advice to people uh, in any field, uh, maybe in your field, but it could be general advice. What piece of advice you'd uh, want to give them? I, I would say don't make a career choice based on how much money you can make. I mean, for example, if you, if you say you want to be a doctor, be a doctor because you want to help people, aid people, make them feel better, not because you can make a boatload of money. That's the wrong motivation. Jeff, how about one lesson you'd give to other people, uh, either in your field or just in general? Uh, the one thing I always um, ask of people, of myself and of others, is that as a universal piece of advice, this is a data-driven world, and I guess most of us live it in those things that we have to be. But you have to be thorough. Uh, really know what you're talking about. Be sure that you've got everything, whether it's positive or negative, about something, that you've assembled all the facts you possibly can, you've honored all of those facts, and then you've made your recommendations based on those. If, if you let stuff get by, if you, let, if you miss stuff by being thorough, um, your credibility goes down pretty fast, yeah. I think. And um, in the oil business, it can cost us uh, millions of dollars. Right. And it, it's fairly visible if you did miss something. I mean... It, yep. There's nothing like being um, dead wrong on the bottom of a borehole for 10 million. Huh. You know, like that Macondo blowout in the Gulf of Mexico? Right. That, was, that well was well over $10 million a day just to drill. Yeah, that's scary. And uh, made one big mistake right. or two. Okay. Uh, Jeff, uh, we typically ask just general questions, either about your career, your experience, or life. Uh, any interesting story you could tell us about, brief on? Many, many years ago, we were looking into uh, buying um, a Kazakhstan oil company called Aktiabinsk Neft. Not that it matters, but there I am in downtown Akhmalov. Uh, 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 and I'm waiting, I'm having dinner with some guys, they're, they're Kazakhs, and I'm standing out in front of this restaurant waiting for them to show up in my suit and tie, and along the street comes a gaggle of little girls and boys, maybe, oh, I don't know, 10 years old, 12 years old or something, with their teacher. And they walk up to me, and as they're walking by, they said, are you American? I said, well, yes, I am. Well, they were all studying English, so they wanted to speak English. So I spent, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes of saying, yes, hello, how are you? My name is, what is your name? What do you do? I'm all those kind of basic um, phrases and things you do. And they all just gathered around me and then vanished off like a flock of doves when my uh, guests arrived. Well, that's but I always thought 
those little kids yep. were just as excited as they could be. And I was just as excited as I could be to, to just be standing there and doing that. That's great. Yeah. And, and I think uh, all it took was some initiative on their part, your part, and yeah. many of us that yeah. travel, uh, you kind of miss some of those opportunities if you're too much in a rush or you don't reach out. So that's, that's a very nice story. One last yeah. one that's atypical. Uh, how about the, the role of women uh, in geology and exploration? Well, I think that's, that's, a, that's a very good question because it is, and my, my impression is, and I have kept kind of loose contact with the various oil companies over the years, women are now our principal component of the, the exploration department in geology and geophysics and even petroleum engineering, going out in the rigs and doing all the rest of that stuff, which was an absence, uh, certainly not an absence, but a very small number, like 1% or 2% uh, in my day. And But no, they, they're, um, they're equal heavy hitters as anybody else in the business these days and just as well equipped mentally and physically to do it. So, yeah, it's a, it's a big positive change. Well, that's great. Well, Jeff, this has been really uh, informative. I know a lot of people in, in their beginning of their career uh, are looking for different options, and this represents a, a, a very long and successful option that they can pursue. So thank you for yep. spending your time with CareerPod. We really value your contribution. Thanks. Well, uh, I appreciate being invited to do this, and I'm looking forward to the final product. Okay. Good enough, Jeff. Take care now. Thanks. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye.